I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Did you first blow? And I'll bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose. Good morning, Vietnam! You let me worry about that green beret. Napalm in the morning. Your first, last, and only podcast for the Vietnam War through film. Good morning, campers. Welcome to a, wow, very special edition of Napalm in the Morning. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we have uh, a live captive audience. Let, let, them, let them hear you out there, folks. Yeah, okay. That is not, in fact, canned uh, applause. No, we have that we as have, an we option, have that, but We have that button. Yeah. This is the canned applause. Um, so I prefer the real stuff. <laughs> I do, too. Um, we're here with uh, uh, part of the uh, taking advantage of our role as faculty members as we can, we can hijack students and, uh, and uh, subject them to the things that we like um, or the things that we're interested in, I guess. Correct. And uh, so today, uh, you've all uh, watched along with us on the movie FTA. Um, what does that stand for, Matt? Free the Army. <laughs> Free the army, yeah. You could see in um, uh, there was a big hesitancy in 1972 to to say the F word publicly, um, but uh, it also could mean other things. Um, FTA, um, yeah. A little this this we should say a bit about that. This movie is kind of interesting in that it was it has its own it has its own context and history, right? It was it was released in 72. Um, and it was, we'll talk a lot more about this, but it was, it was sort of a, a response to the USO tour um, going around um, to, to military bases. And uh, it, uh, it came out about the same time that, that Jane Fonda, the videos of her in, in Hanoi came back. Is that Hanoi, right? Hanoi Jane. Yeah, good old Hanoi Jane, right. And so, so, which was a very controversial Jane Fonda, you know, one of the most famous um, actresses in the world is in North Vietnam uh, talking to um, uh, uh, North Vietnamese government military and uh, sitting on the anti-aircraft um, so right. yeah. they, the movie was pulled after about one week in theaters and you know many of the of copies destroyed lost but yeah. found and, right and then and then, then and then just recently um, copies of this film were um, again put together and then now made streaming available. And so um, it's kind of an interesting um, document. A, lo- a lot of the films we review are, um, you know, movies made in the more recent past or, or, cert- or mostly after the Vietnam War, most of them, about said event. Right. This is, yeah, a documentary, which we have yet to cover one Mostly because I think it's a little difficult to tell jokes <laughs> about documentaries. Uh, so, but here we are, and uh, yeah, it, w- it was quite an interesting and uh, in some ways overlooked sort of historical aspect of the anti-war movement. And uh, we'll we'll get into all that today. Yeah. So um, maybe we should say we should say a little bit about um, the USO. Um, this this 
in in house, you guys have watched this, so you have an idea of what we're talking about here. Uh, but for listeners uh, at home, um, maybe sit about the USO, and I'm going to jump up here to the uh, to the to run the um, AV if you need it, Matt. USO was founded uh, by uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1941, the United Service Organizations. Uh, and so that, and it was actually before the U.S. entered the Second World War, um, but the draft had already been instituted for it. And so the USO was kind of created sort of as a public relations maneuver to sort of maybe offset some of the resentment people felt about, um, you know, armed strangers roaming roaming the streets of their hometowns. Right. Uh, and, but the, but the organization kind of encouraged bonding between citizens and soldiers. Also give those young men... Um, something else to do or focus on stay out of the bars let's encourage them to be clean cut boys wholesome fun. um and what it's probably most famously known for is the bob hope uso shows and he, he did these from starting in 1941 through 1990 and he began doing it domestically in u.s bases but starting in 43 the show started to go overseas and they're kind of you know these variety show style shows um, you know, some of the biggest names in Hollywood are there and it's meant for a military audience. And this morphed into making it a Christmas special or a Christmas show. And it started as a radio show um, for troops stationed in Germany during the Berlin airlift. Uh, in the 50s, it started going on television and... Yeah, I was going to say it was, it was pretty widely watched, right? Right, um, right. Yeah, it's television. real popular, um, especially like over time. And as we get into the Vietnam era, yeah, it's very popular. But I mean, he's so he's doing this pre-Vietnam. I think it's probably he's most known for the ones in Vietnam. But, you know, he's in Greenland. He's in the Pacific. He's in the Mediterranean. He's all over the place. His Vietnam trips start in 1964. And he would bring like Raquel Welch, Sammy Davis Jr., um, Neil Armstrong and Margaret, a whole, you know, whole host of famous people and like kind of lesser known dance troops or people, other comedians would go and soldiers watched. They came and this was like a day off. This would be, you know, they'd get in these nicely cleaned and pressed uniforms so they look real fancy. And they would kind of, you know, really relish in the sort of celebrity fest. But by the time you're in Vietnam, you know, it would have been their parents, the soldiers' parents' era would have been initially maybe seeing hope during World War II. His jokes and his style of jokes weren't really maybe translating so much so well. Um, a lot of them found kind of the show was sort of corny. Maybe the jokes were sort of offensive. Um, really the objectification of like any of the female co-stars, uh, occasional overt racism. Um, yeah. And he would have got. He would have gotten fired uh, as coach of the Raiders. I think. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, good example. Of this is a USO show in Saigon, 1970. A GI band opened the show up and uh, dedicated a song to Mister Mister Hope and played the Black Sabbath classic War Pigs. Um, and so, but each each show ended with a big, long, broad sing along of Silent Night. Um, and then the shows would be later broadcast in the U.S. The 1970 broadcast is one of the most watched shows of all time, like period, in, in television history. And uh, you want to take a quick look at an excerpt? Yeah, this is from that uh, January 14, 1971. 
It, that's when it was broadcast. It was, okay. Uh, yeah, this is filmed in 1970. Okay, here we go. How about that, Jennifer? What do you think of this reception? It's lovely, but why are they whistling? Oh, that, they're not whistling, that's steam escaping. <laughs> it just came to a boil. <laughs> I understand you used to be an airline hostess. Yes, Bob. I love traveling, going from country to country. I feel that each one gives you something. Yes, and I see you only took the best. <laughs> I don't like to get personal, but may I ask your age? Of course, I'm 23. 23. Well, I must say, you're certainly well-preserved for a woman of your years. Let's not keep these men in suspense. What are your statistics? 37, 23, 36. That's not remarkable. It's not remarkable? <laughs> it is when your sergeant's 48, 48, 52. Well, there you go. That's a quick little peek at, uh, at one. The final, the final one in Vietnam was 1972. Uh, but he, he still did them. He uh, hosted from, you know, Beirut, 83, um, off of aircraft carriers. Um, in, he did one in Saudi Arabia, too. So 1990 yeah, if, was the and last it's pre- one. It's pretty stark if you compare that, and we'll listen to some clips later, but with the, um, the performers in FTA, right, the, the skits that they're doing are, they're in industri- in direct response to sort of um, over, over sort of object, objectification, kind of sexist stuff like this in, the, um, in those contexts. And so that gives you some sense of where mm-hmm. those voices in, the, uh, in, in FTA are coming from, right? Um, should, we, should, we, um, should we say a little bit about that you can't, you can't think about the, um, the war uh, in, or the, the, the anti-war movement among soldiers without the counterculture anti-war sentiment building across the United States in this period. Um, and, uh, and maybe, um, Matt, you want to start off with SDS, and then we can maybe talk about some of the, some of the touch points um, yeah, just, that are happening culturally. Right. I mean, yeah, briefly to sort of set some of the historical context for the anti-war movement, um, you know, SDS is a good place to start. And Tom Hayden, who was a, civil rights worker and he wanted to kind of expand social justice activism beyond just civil rights and so he formed SDS and SDS is really an attack against like kind of mainstream liberalism so you know like Lyndon Johnson um, but against Cold War ideology the kind of so-called Cold War consensus of the era um, and promote a participatory democracy get involved right don't just sit yeah. back and, and kind of get walked all over, do more, vote, but do more than vote, right? Participatory democracy. They, and they had, they, had, they had seen in the civil rights era what collective action could do to move the needle on legislatively and socially. Yeah. And so that was, a, that was a major inspiration to like, okay, like now there's this other thing we don't agree with, the, the war in Indochina. So um, get out and, and be heard. Yeah. Free speech movement, that's one way to do it. That's uh, University of California, Berkeley activists. My um, alma mater. Go, go Bears. Yeah. yeah, go Bears. Cal uh, Bears. Oh, those Bears. Um, uh, they're inspired by core, um, a core protest against racial discrimination 
and hiring that led to the formation of the free speech movement. And that rallied in the face of state and uh, county police efforts to stamp out demonstration. And I mean, Berkeley is really a hotbed, um, you know, like People's Park in Berkeley. I mean, this goes back to like 1960, you know. Um, right. And kind of what, what does the park represent? Like who owns the rights to People's Park? And um, so, I mean, Berkeley is a big hotbed for this. I mean, Berkeley and Madison are probably the two biggest Sort of radical feet. You know, you had, you had periods in American history where um, – up to this point where people were put, getting put in jail for saying swear words or, or putting um, um, unsavory content and ideas. They could, you know, um, libel laws. They could, they, could, they could really curtail free speech. And those are getting challenged not only in the, in the court, but just in public opi- court of public opinion. People are um, no longer sort mm-hmm. of completely complying to the consensus. And so, um, yeah, this is uh, uh, the free speech movement. And... And it's still, I say, when I went to school there, there was still uh, Sproul Plaza, where the home of the free speech movement at Berkeley. You could go there at lunch, and anyone could reserve that space. And I heard some crazy stuff, but uh, uh, it, was, it was really kind of an incredible education. And so that, it's got its roots in that sort of radical free speech. Yeah, and that, and that lends itself kind of to a more broad discussion about just college campuses and students particularly concerned about the war in Vietnam, uh, fighting against the draft, fighting against any, like, military research done on campus. Um, I mean, NIU itself has, yeah. uh, was, there was a bombing at the to, center. To give for, you a sense, the Center for Southeast Asian Studies was, was, was a bomb, was bombed. It didn't, it was a dud. It just smoked. It didn't go off. But um, because the st- idiot student activists wrongly thought that we were Southern Illinois, who was, actively teaching Vietnamese to the sort of army officials um, engaged in, in the conflict. And so they just didn't do their homework and said, well, there's a Center for Southeast Asian Studies. That must be the one. And it was bombed actually in Zuloff Hall. The, the, it was on the base, on the first floor there. Um, and, and, and major, like, uh, um, you know, uh, across campus students, thousands of students uh, uh, getting... Um, herded by the national shot at by the national guard and hurt and fleeing into the lagoon and then them the police searching campus for any students that are wet because they that they were part of the protest and they read so it was uh it was very real when, when people tell you like oh today our country has never been more divided like you want to say like you should open a history book because <laughs> uh it was pretty crazy yeah yeah um and College campuses were kind of one of the hotbeds for that. Yeah, and like, so not just your Berkeleys, but your NIU's. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the largest anti-war protests of the entire war were after Nixon announced the invasion of Cambodia in 1970, in April 1970, April 30th. Uh, and in the aftermath of that is when you had uh, Kent State, Jackson State, um, the killings of students at both those campuses. And so those, those uh, you know, if you think about, like, Kent State, it puts National Guard soldiers in the obviously terrible position of, you know, um, questioning, questioning the use of, of acting against uh, free speech in their, own, um, in their own public. And that is mirrored in, in Vietnam with events like the Tet, Tet Offensive early 1968, uh, you know, the, 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 the U.S. government had been able to sort of toe the line that, like, we're winning the war, the war is winnable, we're making great advances, like, you know, body count, and look, look at where um, we're having lots of success, 
Uh, it's, uh, the draft is okay. It's worth it, um, all of these sacrifices, because they're bringing results. And then um, what, happens in, what happens in Tet, Matt? Tet Offensive is like a national, nationwide uh, attack by both the North and Viet Cong on like any major, pretty much any th- anything that you could consider a city or a large town. Right, so, the, so the South, the Arvin is, is you know, it's, it's, it's sort of their, imagine what Christmas holiday, you know, season, like uh, a nice Buddhist festival, um, you know, it's kind of a traditional peace um, armistice period, and right. the North Vietnamese use this as an opportunity to really attack everywhere in South Vietnam. Uh, so the, the fictions of, hey, this is, this is, we're making progress, and, you know, tactically, um, it, it, on, on paper, the big losses by the North, they, you know, they, they all, they threw a lot and of the people. The Viet Cong are decimated, they don't really ever recover. Yeah, so, so they, so they really, it's almost a suicide mission, but the P in public relations, the, the appetite for the war um, is is really flagging in mm-hmm. in sixty. It was sixty eight. It's really a turning point. And globally. then then you get like more prominent um, kind of disruptive factions like the Weathermen, um, who was part of SDS, but they sort of split because they didn't think SDS was aggressive enough. So they're like underground. They promote violent resistance to the war. So they're they're like doing bombings. Um, there was one in Madison. Where a grad student was killed, um, there you know in several places there were several members of the Weathermen that were killed accidentally when they were making bombs in I think it was in New York City, um, right next to Dustin Hoff- yeah. Hoffman's yeah. house, right? <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Speaking of the mic, please. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. You got a mic there. Uh, and yeah, so so I mean that's just kind of another example, kind of on the more extreme end. Um, but broadly speaking, like kind of this new left brings with it like this counterculture that sort of is rejective of normative middle class values, professional va- expectations, uh, sexual religious behaviors, promotion of drug use like pot or acid, um, rock and roll, baby. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, sexual liberation, all that stuff, right? That kind of comes with the counterculture. Yeah, that's that's part of the package of like you know, um, not trusting your you know your parents' generation, uh, and this is this is this is this is really the first generation that kind of massively turns away from sort of the 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 sort of towing the line of what their uh, of what their parents might have um, expected of them, uh, and so and you see this in um, FTA, but also um, this is. Like the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, uh, women are realizing that hey, we're also you know not getting, not having our say in society. We're having expectations of staying home, only having children as sort of job op- opportunities. Those are those are also driving the uh, resistance to um, sort of the traditional kind of roles um, for women and um, how we're. What was women's experience in civil rights groups like that? Yeah, I mean, they are participating in large numbers, but it's oftentimes they're kind of marginalized and in, in, into these quote-unquote traditionally female roles. And so even these, you know, liberal groups that are like, you know, oh, we're all inclusive, we're all equal, women are still getting like, you know, jobs doing like clerical work and stuff. Like they're not right. generally getting any like leadership roles and things like that for the most part. Um 
you know, anti-war activists, women aren't subject to the draft. So in some ways they're kind of sidelined just because of that fact. But, you know, they're, they are, they do promote draft resistance. You know, the refrain, girls say yes to guys who say no to the draft, um, <laughs> is, is a, is a semi-popular one during the era. And, and yeah, so. And so, and, and, and also another current is, um, the longer this war goes, the, the deeper you get into drafting people who aren't, aren't interested, aren't at all willing to go into the military, right? But they're, the, the deeper the draft goes, the deeper the war goes, the more unpopular it is, the more you have uh, soldiers and enlisted men who are um, not at all enthusiastic about, uh, they had no interest in this in the beginning, uh, and the war is headed clearly in, an, in another direction. Um, and this brings us up to, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cue Dan to get ready for some maybe some audience uh, uh, questions here, but, um, you know, the, as, as Fonda points out, you know, she realizes that the, the, if the anti-war movement was uh, upper class uh, and white, the GI movement against the war was, work, was, was very working class, um, blue collar and racially diverse, black and Latino especially, um, for reasons we're, we're going to get into. Uh, more than 300 GI anti-war newspapers are um, circulating at this time. That's a big number. Huge. Yeah, huge. And uh, I mean, let's maybe okay. Let's let's have some audience uh, participation here. Um, examples of some of you found interesting about uh, the GI anti-war movement. Um, things you found uh, ways that they resisted that were of interest to you. We're on a tight time budget too, so uh, <laughs> please go quickly. Dan, do you have some? Do you, you had some. I know, Dan has said that's some really great answers to this question. So, yeah, you want to call on someone, Dan? Hello. Yeah, we had a plethora of great uh, answers on the podcast questions, and uh, I'm going to pick on somebody right now. Mo, break the ice, buddy. Do you have a plethora? A plethora? Um, I was going to say I liked how everyone was kind of involved. Like, it, it didn't matter about race or anything like that. They were all together under, like, one objective. The, 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 the way that the soldiers, um, I mean, I guess what the common cause of, of black, Latino, and white soldiers against the war, is that what you mean? Yeah, like, everyone was, no one was, like, focused on, like, racism or anything. Like they were just trying to get there to just protest being anti-war, and that was all they were trying to focus on, if that makes sense. Within the FTA troop itself, I mean, that's kind of reflected because um, you have a wide, you know, the whole spectrum of everybody within that FTA troop is is represented, and and uh, I think they're kind of bringing that message along. Yeah, you saw that in, in the selection of performers, right? There's 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 a pretty diverse cast of characters that are that are leading that troop, um, as diverse as you would see in any sort of performance troop these days, and uh, with um, uh, and a woman in charge, Jane Fonda, in charge of the in charge of the group leading it. Um, any other any other examples of uh, um, sort of anti-war movement that you kind of thought were interesting? Yeah, I, I, add one I was gonna say I kind of liked how it was more like a of a show rather than like a a f formula. Like when you think of protest, you think of like a bunch of people just protesting down the street. But the way they did it, it was more like a show where they would have 
they would sing and they would do like comedy stuff and all around they would it made it more interesting i guess yeah counterfactually matt do you think it would would it would have had the same effect if it had been another demonstration versus choosing this format I mean, everybody's marching, right? Um, this sort of sets it off, makes it a little different. Um, I was wondering, like, where the funding comes from. That, like, they, they don't go into that in the film. Um, obviously, it's not cheap to... Uh, I, did, I, did some, I did some looking up of this. You did? Okay. They, they, um, so for funding, they, they, put, they put, as the film makes clear, they go around to um, near, near military bases in the U.S. and abroad, and they put on these... These sort of anti-war shows, these follies, these USO-style um, uh, variety show with singing and dancing, and yeah. and and the, you had to buy tickets if you weren't military. You had to buy, um, you had to pay for a ticket. It was like five dollars, which is a lot in 1972. Yeah, um, and the soldiers were free. So so and then and then private donations were um, enlisted, which they don't really get into where they came from, but but it seemed like a mix of ticket. And ticket revenues, and so they're so they're going around, and yeah, and 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 uh, yeah, and if you think of like if you've ever been to a march, um, show of hands, anyone been to a march or a rally here? It's would you say it was a pretty somber occasion? Was it like or serious, right? Yeah, so it would you know, and, and it is um, as where this is the I think for soldiers they have enough you know life and death stress on their, on themselves, like to be able to laugh, like, you know, that, that's one thing that was kind of, uh, um, I, th I think it would be something that was actually entertaining for them. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's taken from, the material comes from a lot of those GI newspapers too, you know, they're getting, yeah, they're getting stories and they're, you know, maybe kind of recalibrating them to a, to a visual form of, of, of performance, but, uh, you know, these are their stories. This is this kind of stuff that they're gonna, the soldiers are gonna be able to relate to. So I think it's it's effective for for that reason, for sure. Yeah, and if you're if you if you're interested in that movie, the the another documentary, Sir No Sir, um, goes into their uh, into the anti-war movement specifically, not necessarily FDA, and um, you know they make a point and and other reading that. You know, by by like seventy to seventy three, this period that we're in, counterculture um, and opposition is high. Ninety two thousand deserters, um, tens of thousands fleeing to Canada, France, Sweden, um, and organizing demonstrations on military bases. So you sort of sort of open resistance in the ranks, um, uh, combat refusals. Um, do you want to say a bit about fragging, um, Matt? Fragging, are you uh, familiar with that term, anyone? Fragging is when you, uh, a soldier essentially kills or, you know, attempts to kill a superior officer. Uh, and as kind of new arrivals are coming into the country, you know, kind of post-1970, they're bringing a lot of that anti-war sentiment that maybe they've got at home, they've been exposed to at home, they bring it with them. They're kind of questioning, what are we doing here? And, and I think uh, a lot of that just leads to more tension once these new new recruits are coming in. And so 1970 alone, there are two, over 200 fragging incidents in, in Vietnam. And 
Yeah. It's yeah, they, I mean, the, the Pentagon concludes that over half of the ground troops openly oppose the war. Um, that's that's a lot. <laughs> And uh, and so the the you know they're they're and they're shifting to an air war versus a ground war, um, but but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a serious issue for uh, from the military side as well. And then um, this interesting phenomenon of the of the coffee house um, emerges, right? And so these are spaces, kind of safe spaces for for military. They're near military bases where soldiers can go and do whatever they want. Uh, they can say whatever they want. They can. Uh, hang out and um, a place off the base, and uh, and this this is often where organizing and anti-war newspapers and I think it's in these coffee houses where Jane Fonda and others get right. the message like, hey, you should. You, there's the, there's a big movement and maybe you should do something. Right. Yeah. We'll talk coffee houses a little later too. So um, one of the one of the one of the really I think poignant parts of this was that uh, listening to um, soldiers of color, especially black soldiers, talk about their experience in um, in the war uh, and with um, anti-war um, sentiment. Um, maybe uh, Dan, if you could help us out, like does anyone have any with a the mic there? Um, how do you think black soldiers' resistance was different, was portrayed in the documentary, and how were their concerns different than um, white soldiers? In the film, I think the concern from black soldiers was a lot different because in one of the one of the soldiers that was being interviewed, they they said that when it came to fighting in the Vietnam War, they felt that it was more about fighting someone who oppressed them. And he mentioned the Vietnamese as brothers, as somebody who wasn't oppressing them. Therefore, it was not their war to fight. But white soldiers, they don't have that concern. And I think that's kind of where the difference is between both of them. And they had other concerns as well. I think there was another one about, oh, I can't remember what it was about. Wait. Well, I just know that most of the most of what they talked about was that it wasn't really their war. The fight was a white man's war and not their war. So th- they also said, "How are we going to fight this war of democracy when America doesn't even isn't even the perfect democracy yet?" Is what kind of what they said in Spill. Sure. Yeah. No. I. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. Does anyone else want to add on to that? I mean, I think that sentiment of, uh, Eric, you've got that, the Ali clip there. Yeah, hold um, on here. Let me pull it up. That, that sentiment you just expressed that you, so, you got from the film is, I, I think, a, a one that's kind of broadly felt by many African Americans um, with respect to the war. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud a big, powerful America, and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. They never lynched me. They never put no dogs on me. They never robbed me of my nationality, raped and killed my mother and father. What, I'm going to shoot them for what? How can I go shoot them? Them little poor little black people, little babies and children and women. How can I shoot them poor people? I'll just take me to right jail. Right there, yeah. So, yeah, maybe this is, how famous is Muhammad Ali? Um... You know, LeBron James plus 
more than that, probably. Michael fame. Jordan or um, something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's the most famous athlete of the era, and he refuses to be drafted in 1967. He's arrested. He's stripped of all his, his boxing titles. He's banned from the sport for over three years for refusing to fight. So that the equivalent would be, you know, LeBron James being banned from playing basketball and, like, stripped of his titles or whatever. Right. If, um, in the, if in the Black Lives Matter had, like, something like LeBron said, I'm refused to play um, basketball. That, that's, that's the equivalent. Well, an, an entity would keep him from playing basketball. <laughs> right, right. It, would, right. it would put him in jail. Yeah, which, yeah. Right. Um, it's overturned, finally, by the Supreme Court in 1971. But, I mean, it's just, you know, you got that other clip, too? Um, yeah, here we go. I'm saying you talking about me about some draft and all of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm going to die, you my enemy. My enemy is the white people, not Viet Cong's or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs. And you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. Yeah, so again, I mean, and that's, you know, not, I mean, 1968, famously, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised kind of their fists. Uh, do you got that image there from the slideshow uh, in solidarity with the kind of the black power movement uh, at the Olympics. But they, they, they wore uh, no shoes when they went up on stage to kind of represent uh, the poverty that so many African-Americans are, are living in at home. Um, you can see Carlos's shirt is unzipped there in the center, uh, which is supposed to represent kind of solidarity with blue collar uh, workers. And there, there's lots of other things, you know, kind of a certain necklace they wore. Um, there's a lot of symbols there, and the two fists raised up. Um, this sort of stuff translates to Vietnam, right? That's 68, Ali is 67, you know, 1970 Army study of the 197th Infantry Brigade reported that black soldiers frequently complained that, uh, quote, white NCOs always put black soldiers on the dirtiest details. African Americans are... 11% of soldiers in Vietnam, but only 2% of officers. Uh, the Deputy History Assistant of Secretary of Defense for Civil Rights, L. Howard Bennett, um, served under Johnson and Nixon. Uh, he noted black soldiers often, quote, complained that they are discriminated against in promotions, that they will stay in grade too long, they will train and teach whites who come in, and pretty soon their trainees pass them by, and they get the promotions. Um, and do you want to listen to another clip here, Matt? I think that ties in. This is uh, a soldier that's speaking to that yep. from the from the documentary here. To do this, they put me off a do not recommend for promotion. They just want you to be a little robot. You wind them, you, they wind you up, and they want you to do the job that you're supposed to do. They don't consider you a human being. They don't want you that's to be an individual. It. Anytime you are an individual, they slap you around till you get back in line again. More brothers are coming into the service every day. And more brothers are leaving. The brothers are leaving. More militants than they were before they come in. There's got to be a reason why. Why don't they join this green motherfucker? And they'll <laughs> find out just that where it's at. No war for, for a black man, no kind of way. This is a white man's war. We just started and had nothing to do with it. But people over there are our brothers. So we believe in the third world. We went down there for democracy. So it's interesting. They're, they're really um, uh, tapping into sort of, uh, um, sort of a global, a global anti-colonial... Um, p post-colonial, you know, uh, movement um, 
uh, third world kind of liberation kind of uh, that 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 is a powerful discourse for um, the African American soldier, right? Because they're they're not wrong. They the they are in many ways this is this is not their war for sure. Yeah, and the, I mean there is a lot of tension in Vietnam that is kind of reinforcing it. I think there's an attempt to be, you know, like, oh, here, here, you know, in, in the trenches, you know, everybody's, everybody's a brother, you know, we're all united together and stuff. And that's kind of the, the, the rhetoric that they would put out there. But like in reality, like there is racial tension. Like there are white sections and black sections of Saigon, like where white soldiers would go to hang out and black soldiers would go to hang out. And, you know, the Vietnamese, like doesn't take them long to figure this out. Like, oh, okay. And so they are, they attempt to use some of that, those racial tensions to kind of like exploit and kind of find little, little, little holes yeah. there. Like Vietnamese, like, like Viet Cong propaganda or something like that. You know, they would have drop leaflets, you know, saying like, you know, uh, African-American soldiers, like, you know, what, what, we're not your enemy, um, you know, at, at home, like, you know, you can't sit at a lunch counter and all this stuff. And like, yeah, and, it, and it's, ac- and it's actually the, uh, the, um, in the, in the documentary, they talk about that, that watching Vietnamese drop pamphlets to, to black soldiers about these very issues gave them the idea, let's drop pamphlets, um, for, on military bases about the FTA movement. I think we've got a question here, Dan, do you want to, let, let, let's, let's get you on mic so we can have you recorded here, put the, so we can we can hear you. Okay, you're uh, you're muted still, Dan. Unmute there. Click. There now you're unmuted. Okay. Uh, I was just gonna add on to like I also feel like as an African American, you're also you're already looked at as less than and even still today. So, like of course the concern would be different from like a white soldier. I was just gonna add that on to like what she said. So. Could you see this resonating with, um, you know, for the, the I mean, did, did it, the students who um, have similarly maybe in, in Black Lives Matter context, like, could you see definite parallels to today? Yeah, like, I feel like, I feel like it's sad, but like, I feel like history is like repeating itself with everything like going on today, like with Breonna Taylor, with George Floyd, like, there's just a lot of things that have happened, you know, like, again, you know, that happened to, like, Emma Till, and, like, you know, so, I don't know, that's just, like, my view, and especially as an African-American soldier, like, back then, it's, like, no, why would you, like, why would you go fight somebody else for, like, Muhammad, or, yeah, Muhammad Ali said, so, yeah, I was just gonna add that on, that's all I had to say. No, that's great, great perspective, thanks, and it, and it, 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 it is a bit frustrating to watch, watch something like that, and you realize that, like, that could have been said, yesterday right and and probably meant the mm-hmm. same thing um and so that's that's it's kind of uh um you know those 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 needles don't move very even mm-hmm. even even this post civil rights act this is not it doesn't end um you know so the old style like well obama yeah. is president so racism is dead now like well no <laughs> it's, it's we don't need the voting rights act anymore Supreme yeah. court can overturn it because yeah that we that's everything's good now yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's a that's a good. Let me uh, let me just say, like, I think the the assassination of Dr. King um, in April '68 is a flashpoint, of course, in the United States, but in, in Vietnam too. I mean, there are, um, a uh, a journalist traveled to Vietnam just after that and met with soldiers, and you know, he he reported back that many quote had no intention of allowing things to stay the way they were, uh, referencing before that. Uh, for that time, and um, so I think 
a lot of black soldiers, according to his reporting, kind of are enjoying, um, uh, embracing black power movement. But then you have the counter to that. After King's death, a bunch of white soldiers are hanging up Confederate battle flags outside their bar- barracks and like celebrating it. And there are three confirmed cross burnings in Vietnam by white soldiers. Um, and of course, <laughs> African American soldiers are complaining about this, and you know I'm sure some other some white well, soldiers too. Well, and you hear too, you know this the, in the in the sort of the deep dives into fragging. You hear um, when they're interviewing soldiers, African American soldiers, they're saying like the way I get talked to, the things that my my commanding officers, the the, the words they use, the, just the you know every racial epithet they're using those at me specifically. And um, what am I supposed to do? You know, like, uh, you know, like they're, they're finding it's just so deeply rooted in like the culture of white supremacy in the, in, yeah. in, in, the, in the military and out of the military. That yeah. is. Well, you, they, the military briefly attempts to ban the hanging of the Confederate flags, but then Southern uh, politicians object and make a big stink about it. And so then the, it's overturned. So then the flying of the Confederate flag is okay again. Um, you know, in these bases in Vietnam, but any symbol of the Black Power movement, even certain hairstyles, uh, are are banned. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, they're right. They're going after sort of, you know, Black culture and identity quite specifically. Um, one interesting thing that I think that probably people don't realize uh, that one maybe one reason to also watch FTA is the um, the resistance movements that it it dovetailed with internationally the at these at these bases right there were um we saw clips from from okinawa uh with the fda performances um from from japan proper um and then uh from the philippines uh what what um what do you see going on here i mean the the maybe you want to say a bit about okinawa um okinawa um, yeah, just like real quick, um, known as the Ryukyu independence movement, Okinawa is the largest island of the Ryukyus, um, which is, you know, like a chain southern end of uh, Japan there. It's, it's kind of becomes part of Japan, partly during the Tokugawa era, um, but they're still technically independent during Meiji. It, there's a push to like assimilate um, Okinawans uh, as ethnic Japanese. It's kind of like the wiping out of cultural traditions, language, etc., prefectures formed in 1879 and so in the context of like japan and japan's empire like i think you can look at it as part of that like an early part of that because that's 1879 when it becomes part of japan um and you know that's going to gradually change you know acquisition of taiwan 1895 korea 1910 manchuria northern china and this is all like step taking toward the japanese empire and you know going to get involved in the war in the Pacific and World War II. But following the Second World War, the U.S. maintains control over these islands. And like private land, any, any privately owned land uh, in Okinawa is um, requisitioned for creation of military bases. Um, and owners are put in refugee camps. So, you know, the United States wants to beef up its presence in the Pacific, like have a permanent station, you know, not just in Okinawa, but in other places as well in the Pacific and Philippines. Right. Right. Um, for, for kind of, you know, the, the new 
Cold War reality. Projecting their presence um, into, into you know, as a deterrent to China and Russia. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, nuclear weapons are stored there. Japan is, you know, to this day, famously pretty anti-nuclear weapon for, I forget why. There's got to be some reason. I don't, I don't know what it would be. <laughs> yeah. um, B-52 raids f- uh, on Vietnam depart from Kadena Air Base there in Okinawa. Um, so when we see it in the film, it, t- it is happening in the context of what I'm going to explain to you saying right now. And this is, it, it is going to um, be returned to Japan 15 May 1972, although the U.S. presence is going to remain. 43,000 U.S. troops are going to remain. Basically, like, the U.S. just won't have unrestricted control of the island anymore. Um, but yeah. the presence is going to stay there. And so the plan leaks out in like late 71, and then you have mass protests resulting. Um, so this from the New York Times, November 11, 1971, the same day the Senate ratified the treaty to make this possible. Uh, so this from the Times, quote, mass students broke a bottle of gasoline on a policeman, set him afire, and then beat him to death today. At least 80 other policemen were injured in clashes with demonstrators protesting the planned retention by the United States of military bases here, end quote. And... You know, I think the sentiment of the population there is really summed up by a U.S. official said, quote, uh, they don't like the U.S. military occupation, but they're not wild of the Japanese rule either, end quote. And so this idea of of it's um, they're protesting for independence from the U.S. presence there, but also independence from Japan, uh, who who they kind of saw as, you know, a a sign you would see, you know, held up at protests that said, like, you know, Japan is not our homeland or uh, opposed the stationing of Japanese self-defense forces. Um, And, you know, a lot of the cruelty of Japan during the Second World War or before the Second World War is highlighted in a lot of this stuff. And it's a big deal. And so my my dad was living in Japan at the time. uh, And I asked him, I was like, did you catch Jane Fonda's show? Father, uh, <laughs> would you manage to make it out? And he said, I had no idea what the hell you're talking about. But I did go to some of the Okinawa protests. Uh, was he in Okinawa? Uh, he, no, they, he was in Tokyo. But, okay, um, the protest there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, I mean, maybe he'd been to Okinawa. Like, I don't know. But, um, yeah, he was, their, their house was in Tokyo. But, uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, so it was, it was, what's interesting, so you have soldiers... Um, who find common cause with uh, Okinawans in this case about um, their unhappiness with um, U.S. military presence there, right? And so it's an interesting sort of cooperation that they're, uh, and, and everything from labor to, to labor rights about Okinawans working there to, to um, uh, sort of Yeah, I mean, they went on a general strike, so like yeah. they shut everything down. Yeah, right. Everything down. Okinawans aren't yeah. working. The base isn't going to work. These mainly Okinawans are, you know, the the grunts running the you know, food right. services and the, the whole industry. And then, um, and you saw a lot of really interesting, like soldiers willing to break pretty pretty serious military intelligence confidence about, like, I saw, you know, nuclear weapons go in, or I saw, like, you know, like just openly talking about, like, you know, the government's saying they don't have them here. I helped load them, like. Um, which is which is kind of uh, wild to think about if you know about the chain of command that that is that's how far they've lost sort of the 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 soldier and so um, you say that the the, uh, the the Philippines is another interesting case where um, the the movement 
um, the anti-colonial movement or the anti, like, sort of the liberation from uh, Clark Air Force Base, Subic Bay. These are enormous U.S. military installations that were in the Philippines. Um, you know, entire parts of the Philippines were were kept like Okinawa for uh, for a massive U.S. military presence in in the Pacific and, and in Southeast, and they were used as staging bases for. Um, for the U.S. war in in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and uh, there there's also kind of anti-Marcos. So so the um, you had uh, uh, very unpopular, very undemocratic. The U.S. had also as a pattern of Cold War uh, cozying up to sort of right wing military dictators who would would abide by their. Um, uh, foreign policy aims, and they would agree to sort of uh, support and look the other way at um, sort of mili- military strongmen who, if they support the U.S. agenda um, uh, in, in, in the Cold War. And so um, you have a very unpopular regime in, in the Philippines, and soldiers uh, who are openly protesting um, protesting against the military uh, I think you have from worries from the Philippine government that th- you could see just like the civil rights movement, uh, maybe it might cross pollinate with the anti-war movement and create a new kind of a- angry resistance. You have an already, um, you know, uh, angry resistance of the Filipinos who want, you know, sort of an actual democracy um, in and uh, coupled with you know, hey, the soldiers aren't even in favor of this war or this military base, and it's a, it's a pretty um, uh, kind of caustic, toxic, uh, or um, could really start a start a you know, a, a major uprising. Don't you think? I mean, that's got to be a worry if you're, if you're, a th- you know, tin pot dictator. You don't like, <laughs> you definitely don't like. Uh, you don't like what's uh, uh, riots in the streets, um, people protesting, and so um, no, <laughs> no, that, no. Matt taking the strong stance. No, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about kind of feminism. I, I think Fonda uh, by you know the early seventies is is a huge symbol of this, and she's going to remain so. I mean, through to this day, um, but especially in the seventies. But if we kind of step back in time roughly a decade, you know, go to the Commission on the Status of Women, you know, appointed in 1961, it was it kind of laid the groundwork to the passage of the Equal Pay Act, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, triggered further debate on the Equal Rights Amendment that was originally proposed in 1923, um, and the ERA Equal Rights Amendment is going to be a huge Huge thing in the 70s, um, which would uh, be an amendment to the Constitution to, you know, guarantee equality uh, between men and women. Um, it, of course, does not pass, does not get ratified. Um, but the, so kind of Fonda's kind of coming out of this era of kind of, kind of you know, women's uh, liberation. Uh, the Feminine Mystique, uh, Betty Friedan, 1963, wrote this, this book, super popular, um, kind of like looked at women's lives and kind of like offered a new analysis of like what the role of like the woman could be. Um, and she reported on women that were like in households, you know, the so-called quote unquote housewife, you know, and that they're feeling isolated, they're alienated. They want, they, they want more from their existence than just to 
you know, if you've seen like Mad Men, like, you know, the first seasons of that where she just gets him the whiskey when he gets home from work and she does everything with the kids and like, he, you know, has to have the house looking. That's like your job now, Matt. It's kind of like my job now. Yeah. Uh, just doesn't drink whiskey though, but, uh, <laughs> um, IPAs. <laughs> yeah. So, so that kind of leads to the National Organization for Women, Free and others established in 1966 to promote gender equality, once again, push for the Equal Rights Amendment, um, maternity leave, uh, increased availability of child care centers, reproductive rights. Wow, it's weird. We're like having these same discussions like today. Um, but the, uh, it's a largely like white and middle class movement. And as you kind of get into the, the 70s, um, you'll, there'll be like a lot of kind of like offshoots and like splinter groups and there'll be like all this big debate about like kind of representation, uh, within the feminist movement. Um, but yeah, you have a clip there from the film that kind of gets at, I think some of this. Yeah. So as, as we watch this clip, think about the contrast it with, um, the Bob Hope, um, clip we showed at the beginning of, um, him essentially, you know, Sizing a woman up and telling, uh, asking literally, her yeah, literally. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone! And now a wild barracks thirty-eight brings a song. Some guy he wants to talk. My head it gets so blocked and it gets so sore. Cause although I talk real fine, that is what is on his mind. I'm a pretty piece and he's just trying to score. They whistle for me like a dog, make noises like a hog. Heaven knows they sure got problems, I agree. But their problems I can solve, cause my sanity's involved. And I'm tired of bastards fucking over me. Peacefully at work, and I'm confronted by some jerk who had some obscene quirk he must display. So I know this dude is ill, I can't help but want to kill any other man who's standing in my way. I know that life is tough, and to be a man is rough, but I have had enough and can't ignore that their masculinity don't respect my right to be, and I solemnly do swear I'm going to song and hope that you won't think it's a joke because it's time we all awoke to take a stand we've been victims all our lives now it's time we organize and to fight we're gonna need each other's hands they whistle for me like a dog and make noises like a hog heaven knows they sure got problems i agree yeah so that's a pretty pretty uh if you could think of a polar opposite um <laughs> sketch to the Bob, the Bob Hope one, right? That's uh, uh, that's calling out, um, you know, uh, glass ceilings in employment. It's calling out sort of just sexism, public sexism, um, discrimination. Uh, this is a this is pretty confrontational stuff in '72. I, I think it's also like I think the show, the FTA show as a whole, like it's, it's just 
it's interesting how representative it, it is of a lot of this kind of broad countercultural stuff that we talked about today and, and kind of, you know, you have civil rights movement, black power movement, um, female equality movement, all this stuff is there and it's an anti-war demonstration or performance that they're supposed to be doing, right? But all these other stuff, it's all kind of linked together. So I, I, mean, I think that's real interesting, kind of how representative the show is. Yeah, of I mean, what these different movements that are all happening in this. We like era. to think of like you know what we call today intersectionality, the sort of the 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 way that um, say sort of race and class and gender can can combine together to create um, sort of uh, opposition to to sort of progress in the that you see that this is that's not new that you see it really demonstrated in those kind of different modes of protesting, different modes of like everyone uh, sort of who has a legitimate um, gripe about the way they're being treated as race or their gender, um, you know, lumps it in um, appropriately probably. And then, uh, you know, it's kind of, you you see that the kind of the genie's out of the bottle. um, And uh, again, for those of those of us who study history, like it's can't, to, to think, I can't think of, can you think of a bigger cultural jump between any decade from between 1962 and 1972? Can you think of a, a more radical No, light I speed? mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild how insanely fast everything changes, like ev- everything. And that's going to have ripple effects and, you know, a lot of the reaction then the blowback to a lot of that rapid change is why we are yeah you know the conservative ascendancy and and we're still kind of living under that era to to this point the dis right the discomfort with yeah, it's the all pushback of that, against that stuff with all of that change um is you see, you see that now in a lot of the sort of the political resistance um especially sort of from some wings of the um sort of arch conservative um so I mean, this uh, we should uh, we should uh, we should talk here, Matt. Uh, maybe we got. Uh, do you want to? Uh, uh, do you have any suggestions of uh, uh, if people aren't watching FTA or after they've watched FTA, other things they could look at? Do you mean perhaps a book of the week? Ah, uh, that's I, a book of the week. I do have Matt's I do lovely have children providing that uh, audio. Thank you. Uh, Dangerous Grounds, Anti-War Coffee Houses, and Military Descent in the Vietnam Era by David L. Parsons, published in 2017, um, University of North Carolina Press. And we talked a little bit about the coffee houses, Eric did a, a bit, and this book, if you want kind of, you know, a deeper dive into a lot of this stuff, this book is a great place to, to go for that. Um, you know, it kind of looks at 21 broadly, you know, Overall, 21 anti-war coffee houses kind of located near these different U.S. military bases. Um, most of the focus is on three specific ones. One is um, near Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, one is in Killeen, Texas. And then one is in Tacoma, Washington. And, yeah, like, it's this is the place that these GIs, these soldiers are going to go to gather to discuss the war with like-minded other soldiers, um, civilians, too. And, and kind of share, you know, counterculture literature, um, entertainment to organize anti-war events um, and all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, the 
author's argument is that these coffee houses were, um, you know, kind of a determining factor in the growth and overall survival of local, kind of local anti-war organizations or local GI anti-war organizations. And, you know, perhaps it's too strong of a statement maybe, but like, um, I mean, I, I think it's, once again, it's kind of, this kind of it zoom- provided a forum for sure. For definitely, that, yeah. definitely. And it's kind of one of these like kind of little zoomed in snapshots of an overlooked aspect of the war. I mean, the war has been so well documented by historians, but it's like, you know, every year we're getting more stuff that's really good. So and it's covering it's not just retreading the same ground. It's kind of getting in and some new stuff. So I think Parsons does a nice job of that in Dangerous Grounds, Any War Coffee Houses and Military Descent in the Vietnam era. Okay, so now's the time uh, in the podcast where we give our rating of uh, of this film. Um, from 1 to 10, uh, we give it uh, 1 to 10 dong. Dong is, of course, the Vietnamese currency. Um, uh, yeah, people, come on. Yeah. Ben, where do you, where do you, where do you rate this guy? Where do this, uh, okay. this film? So I, overall, I like the film. Uh, I liked kind of what I was just talking about. I like that it's looking at something that's, generally overlooked uh, historically with not only with the war itself, but with the anti-war movement. Um, and so I, I, the message is an interesting one. Um, I think some of the how the film was, how it attempted to pull off some of the stuff didn't always work. I think they kind of did, did too much on, you know, some of the songs in there just kind of went on too long, too long. And and it just seemed to kind of drag a bit in certain parts. Um, and I think maybe a different editor, like kind of cutting the film differently, um, maybe would have been able to yeah, highlight you saw those some clips of the strong. Where, like they had like the sort of the um, black soldiers talking about their experience and they kept cutting in with, with like the, the white soldiers. Who get, and I'm just like, do that together. Don't cut up his, or yeah, it was odd. Like Yeah, that. yeah. I'm, yeah. So I, you know, I mean, I think the message, overall message of it, the film got across. Um, I think, you know, I think it did get muddied at some points, both from, you know, what I just mentioned. Uh, I think how they incorporate, you know, like kind of the Okinawan protests or or what's going on in the Philippines is not, if you aren't aware of kind of the more broad context of like what's going on, um, it's not like exactly clear, like what, what is happening there. Um, Anyways, that being said, overall, I'm going to go, uh, man, I'll go 6.75. Oh, splitting hairs there, 6.75 dong. I think um, for me, like the part of me that is a, is a historian loved uh, the parts that di- I didn't like as just a, a casual viewer, right? The, the stuff that went on too long, the, the way I was thinking like, oh, it's great. We get these full... You can see the full song. You can see the full poem. You can see the. But as an as an audience member, um, I think some of that might have yet you know again dragged on. And for if you're not totally um, uh, you know on the already loving it you know hook mm-hmm. line and sinker, you might be like, all right, like. Um, I mean, it's I I like listening yeah. to the lyrics because the lyrics are all you know topical and timely. Nothing would be finer on than message, you but, in, invading uh, Indochina in the morning or what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like. <laughs> you know, it's not to discount like the song is a song. I just think for how it worked within the context of the film. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. And so, and so, I think uh, um, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go seven. 
Uh, I'm going to give it seven, uh, seven dong. I think it's the fact that it was uh, sort of saved from the ashes is kind of, it gives me a little sentimental factor as the, the archivist. So um, we're going to give it seven dong. And uh, we have a, an, an, you know, t- today only segment, the live audience. Live audience poll. Yeah, okay. Uh, and the audience has you, voted. Can you give us a drum roll, Matt? Uh, I don't have that button. Okay. You, I think you have that button. Yeah, all right. Here we are. Um, Looks like seven. 50% of you voted seven. I was exactly right. Wow. Yeah. We have a, let's, yeah, we have, we have, we have a, we have a one, uh, but that's an outlier. A nine, which is also outlier, but most of, most of the results are uh, seven and eight. So uh, good job, you guys, in validating mine over Matt's. Um, Seems like we're all on similar, similar wavelengths. But I mean, some are more right we're than like others. Like on the same yeah. wavelength, man. <laughs> well, um, for those who, uh, for those listeners and audience members who want to follow us, where should they go on social media? Hit us up at Napalm Podcast on Twitter. Give us that follow. Uh, if you are listening to the pod, that like button. Yeah, yeah. Go double ahead and do double that. smash that. Give us a review, and yeah. uh, and we'll be joining you next time for. Uh, Napalm in the morning. There's a little prize here. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Thank you for this book. I'll bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose. Good morning, Vietnam! You let me worry about that green beret. Napalm in the morning. Your first, last, and only podcast for the Vietnam War through film.